1: Ocean Vuong is the author of the critically acclaimed poetry collection Night Sky with Exit Wounds, winner of the Whiting Award and the T.S. Eliot Prize. His writings have also been featured in The Atlantic, Harper's, The Nation, The New Republic, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. Born in Saigon, Vietnam, he currently lives in Northampton, Massachusetts. On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous is his first novel. The book is now a New York Times bestseller. (laughs) All right, and appearing with Ocean tonight is Jade Chang. Jade Chang is the author of The Wangs Versus the World, published by Hooten Mifflin Harcourt. The Wangs has been named a New York Times Editor's Choice, as well as a Best Book of the Year by Amazon, BuzzFeed, L, NPR, and others, and was the v- winner of the VCU Cabell First Novel Award. The Wangs will be published in 12 countries, and NPR said this, Her book is unrelentingly fun, but it is also raw and profane, a story of fierce pride, fierce anger, and even fiercer love. Please give Ocean and Jade all of your fierce love tonight! <laughs>
2: Hello everyone. Can you hear me okay? It's a good volume. I get louder as I get braver. Uh, uh, Thank you so much um, for being here, um, for sharing this moment with me and and with each other, um, and, and also for supporting this incredible historic bookstore and uh, by doing so, supporting the community at large. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I was trained as a, as a poet first, and I was taught to, to never expect anybody to wait at the end of what you write. And I think it's good advice. We shouldn't write expecting an audience. Um, but to have a room full of folks standing like this um, that great privilege and pleasure is not lost on me. So thank you so much for your commitment uh, to literature and books and to this community. Thank you. Uh, uh, It's also my deep pleasure to share the conversation um, with uh, the inimitable Jay Chang. Thank you so much, Jade.
0: I'm excited. Thanks
2: Thanks for coming to LA. I'm going to read uh, a short chapter, about seven minutes, and then we'll talk a little bit, and then we'll open it up and have a conversation together, OK? Um, a lot of this book navigates, um, I, I think what I wanted to do with the first person perspective was to turn the eye into a searchlight. Often the eye can be very quickly a black hole. It becomes about me, myself, and I. But I wanted um, the, the gaze to cast light on these characters, particularly Asian-American women who suffer from PTSD, coming out of the diaspora and trying to salvage a life in America. Uh, in the same way that uh, you know, um, Ishmael saw Ahab, uh, Nick Carraway saw Gatsby, and um, Junior saw Oscar Wao in Diaz. In this moment, we'll be dropped into a scene where the women are na- navigating a single mother and a grandmother is navigating their, their mental illness and the, the son who's about six or seven is observing this, taken on this ride. I'm dragged into a hole, darker than the night around it by two women. Only when one of them screams do I know who I am. I see their heads, black hair matted from the floor they sleep on. The air sharp with a chemical delirium as they jostle in the blur of the car's interior. I still thick with sleep. I make out the shapes, a headrest, a felt monkey the size of a thumb swinging from the rear view, a piece of metal shining then gone. The car peels out of the driveway, and I can tell from the smell of acetone and nail polish that it's your tan and rust Toyota. You and Grandma Lan are in the front, clamoring for something that won't show itself. The street lights fling by, hitting your faces with the force of blows. He's gonna kill her, Ma. He's gonna do it this time, you say, breathless. We riding, we riding helicopter fast, Lan says. She's in her own mind, red and dense with obsession. We riding where? She clutches the flip-down mirror with both hands. I can tell by her voice that she's smiling, or at least gritting her teeth. He's going to kill my sister, Mama, you say. You sound like you're flailing down a river. I know, Carl. It's for real this time. You hear me, Ma? Lawn rock side to side from the mirror, making whooshing sounds. We getting out of here, huh? We gotta go far, little dog. Outside, the night surges by like sideways gravity. The green numbers on the dash read 3.04 a.m. Who put my hands in my face? The tires squeal at each turn. The streets are empty and it feels like a universe in here in everything hurling through the cosmic dark while in the front seat the women who raised me are losing their minds through my fingers the night is black construction paper only the frazzled heads of these two before me are clear swaying don't worry my you're speaking to yourself now your face so close to the windshield the glass fogs a ring that spreads in equal measure to your words. I'm coming, we're coming. After a while, we swerve down a street lined with continentals. The car crawls, then stops in front of a gray clabbered townhouse. My, you say, pulling the emergency brake. He's gonna kill my. Lan, who all this time had been shaking her head side to side, stops as if the words have finally touched a little button inside her. What? Who kill who? Who died this time? Both of you stay in the car, you say. You unbuckle your belt, leap out, and shuffle toward the house, the door left open behind you. There's a story, Lan would tell, of Lady Tiu, the mythical woman warrior who led an army of men and repelled the Chinese invasion of ancient Vietnam. I think of her seeing you. How, as legend goes, Armed with two swords, she'd fling her yard-long breasts over her shoulders and cut down the invaders by the dozens. How it was always a woman who saved us. Who die now? Lon swings around. Her face, made stark by the overhead light, ripples with this new knowledge. Who gonna die, little dog? She flips her hand back and forth as if opening a locked door to indicate emptiness. Somebody kill you? For what? But I'm not listening. I'm rolling down the window, arms burning with each turn. Cool November air. My stomach grabs as I watch you mount the front steps, the nine-inch machete glinting in your hand. You knock on the door, shouting, Come out, Carl, you say in Vietnamese. Come out, you fucker. I'm taking her home for good. You can have the car, just give me my sister. At the word sister, your voice cracks into a short busted sob before regaining control. You bash the door with the machete's wooden butt. The porch lights turn on. Your pink nightgown suddenly green under the fluorescent. The door opens. You step back. A man appears. He half lunges from the doorway as you backpedal down the steps, the blade locked at your side as if pinned in place. He has a gun, Lon Whisper shouts from the car. Now loose it. Rose, it's a shotgun. It shoots two eaters at once. They eat your lungs inside out. Little dog, tell her. Your hands float over your head. The metal clanks on the driveway. The man, huge, his shoulders sloped under a gray Yankee sweatshirt, steps up to you, says a few words through his teeth, then kicks the machete to the side. It disappears in the grass with a flash. You mumble something. Make yourself small. Cup your hands under your chin. The posture you take after receiving a tip at the nail salon. The man lowers his gun as you back away, shaking toward the car. It's not worth it, Rose, Lon says, cupping her mouth with both hands. You can't beat a gun. You just can't. Come back. Come back in the helicopter. Ma, I hear myself say. Ma, come on. You edge slowly into the driver's seat, turn to me with a nauseated stare. There's a long silence, I think you're about to laugh But then your eyes fill, so I turn away To the man carefully watching us Hand on his hip, the gun clamped between his armpit Pointed at the ground When you start to talk, your voice is scraped out I catch only parts of it It's not my house, you explain Fumbling with your keys Or rather, Mai is no longer there. The boyfriend, Carl, who used to slam her head against the wall, is no longer there. This is somebody else, a white man with a shotgun and a bald head. It was a mistake, you're saying to Lan, an accident. But Mai has not lived here for five years, Lan says, with sudden tenderness. Oh, Rose. Although I don't see it, I can tell she's brushing your hair behind your ear the way a mother does. My moved to Florida, remember? To open her own salon. Lana's poised, her shoulders relaxed. Someone else has stepped inside her and started moving her limbs, her lips. We go home now. You need sleep, Rose. The engine starts. The car lurches into a U-turn. As we pull away from the porch, a boy, no older than I am, points a toy pistol at us. The gun jumps and his mouth makes blasting noises. His father turns to yell at him. He shoots once, two more times. From the window of my helicopter, I look at him. I look him dead in the eyes and do what you do. I refuse to die. Thank you.
0: Did you do your own audiobook cuz you should? I did. You I did? Oh yeah, I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> Good Well, it's another thing to put on your list, guys. Uh, so the whole book is like this. It's so beautiful and it's so raw at the same time, and it is a real kind of punch to the heart, and I cried a lot while reading it, but it also has so much kind of um, it has so much about life right now in ways that I didn't expect. It has little glints of humor that I didn't expect. And just so we, all million of us, are kind of on the same page here, do you want to tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book? I know that it started with an essay that you wrote for The New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I, wanted, I wanted the book to also be a map of creation as an artist. I think it felt very important to me as a queer Asian American artist to write a book not only to tell a story, but to in a way, inform others, particularly the dominant white gaze, and how to read us. Because often we are so misread. Mm -hmm. And so much of that uh, is enacted in how the book moves. And it begins with an essay, a nonfiction essay, uh, notoriously fact-checked by the New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you know, at least that's all true. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted the ground to be a historical fact, and I wanted the ceiling to be fabricated from the imagination, as to say, what happens when the story is now in our hands? We know we live through history, mm-hmm. but when we, when we arrive at the blank page, the question for every writer, but especially a writer of color, is what will the world that I live in look like, and how do I preserve that in a way that's faithful, but also in a way that informs a reader outside of that experience to see me with respect and dignity, and to see my people with respect and dignity. And it's a very fraught road, and I think so many of our elders in the Asian American Mm -hmm. writing community uh, have, uh, in a way, been misread and, and they lost so much agency in, in their efforts, particularly Maxine Hong Kingston. Absolutely. Woman Warrior came yeah. out in 1975 mm-hmm. at the end mm-hmm. of the Vietnam War. And when in her letters, Maxine says, I'm trying to write, as a Chinese-American woman, the great American novel. Mm-hmm. I want to put my stone in the long wall made by Faulkner and Melville and Salinger and Plaf. And her publishers convinced her, or made her, I don't know, to call it a memoir. Memoirs of a Childhood Among Ghosts. That's the subtitle. And it went on to win the National Book Critics Circle for nonfiction. So, what happens in that moment? I think what happens is often what happens to writers of color in that we are seen as conduits of Mm -hmm. an anthropological reality rather than craftspeople. And I think I could've put this story Mm -hmm. on Mars and turn it Mm -hmm. sci-fi, I could've put it, you know, in a different time, medieval Europe, whatever, and it will still be true, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to invite an autobiographical reading and ultimately reject it. Because I knew, as as a writer of color, the autobiographical reading will come. Because we are often seen as tour guides to pre-made worlds Mm -hmm. rather than world makers, ourselves. And I think that gaze was going to be inevitable. So as much as this book is an experiment, Mm -hmm. its publication, to me, it's also an experiment. How far have I come uh, from Maxine Hong Kingston's Woman Warrior, how how far have we come as a country, as a literary milieu? And I didn't want to, many folks said, write a memoir, it would sell more, Mm -hmm. it would be juicy. Mm -hmm. Give us the exotic (laughs) truth. And I think that's one of the the damnest things that often force for writers like us is we are seen as merely recorders of smoldering worlds. Mm We look up, we look, and then we jot it down. No craft, never mind sentence making, Mm -hmm. never mind the metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, And we lose so much artistic agency. And so I thought if I were to call it a memoir and write a memoir, I would forsake everything that our elders had done before me, particularly Maxine Hong Kingston. And I couldn't do that, not after 40 years after the fact.
0: I love that you connected to her, and I think that the willingness to kind of claim your place as a world maker is such an important step like it's such an important form of agency and i'm wondering you know what kind of storytelling tradition do you feel like you came from like what kind of storytelling was present in in your home growing up or what were you kind of exposed to in your early in your formative years
2: i think one that is very common mm-hmm. to a lot of folks, not even Asian American communities, but even white communities who come from the European diaspora, um, mm-hmm. particularly World War II, World War I, where the stor- the f- one's life becomes mythologized.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: As immigrants, our elders had nothing yeah. a- as far as wealth. Right. But they were wealthy in stories. Mm-hmm. And they used that as a way to gain respect and to recast their lives in a respectable way. They turned themselves into <laughs> legends. Right. Even on the smallest scale. Yeah. One of the most common things my mother used to say uh-huh. as as a way to guilt me to, into doing things is say, I woke up when I was your, when I was nine years old, I woke up at five in the morning to sell bananas. <laughs> you know. Nobody bought my bananas, but I woke up anyway. And I said, Ma, I, I don't have any bananas to sell. Bananas.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know but that's that's focal, that's mythology. They yes. mythologize yes. themselves as a way to gain a foothold mm-hmm. because they knew mm-hmm. that this country was already debasing them. Right, right. It was their way of saying, I'm still your mother. I'm still your elder. And it was also a way of tracing the efforts it took to arrive. So through storytelling, they created a prehistory.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Prehistory is so very vital, I think, as a nation, f- from no matter where we are. But I think a lot of the dominant forces, particularly when white writers write, they're nervous, Mm -hmm. rightfully so. They're anxious of prehistory because if you go back enough, you arrive at atrocious things like Native American genocide and slavery. Mm -hmm. But I think I was talking in San Francisco yesterday with Rebecca Solnit, and Mm -hmm. she's, an incredible example of what can happen when a right a white writer starts to look
0: back in the and thorough is willing to look as far back as yes, yes absolutely yes. in a yeah. thorough responsible yes. Yes. and without flinching unflinching yeah. gaze. Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. you know I, we actually have a similar family mythology my father escaped on a banana boat <laughs> and yeah. and well, ate bananas so well, you know yes. <laughs> but So let's talk a little bit about craft. Um, I think one of the things, I've read a couple of um, the interviews that you've done about this book, and one of the things you said that really struck me was that you said that this is a book, you wanted to write a book without victims and without villains. And I thought that was so profound and beautiful, especially because we have been kind of conditioned to look at a book that is by. an immigrant writer, a book that is by a person of color, as a book that's going to be full of some kind of horror and pain. And I have to say, even, you know, as someone who try, has tried very hard not to do that, I, in reading the beautiful relationship that, the, that Little Dog, the main character in this book, um, has with Trevor, I kept expecting something terrible to happen. And it was such a like, profound <laughs> relief for them to, I mean, it's not perfect, you mm-hmm. know, but it is just a beautiful teenage love. And it was such a profound relief <sighs> to read that. Right, right. Yeah.
2: Thank you for, for, observe, for recognizing that. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's not a coincidence that in our human species, the orchestrator of war and literature are men. Mm -hmm. that's just the fact of the dominant force, up until very recently. And now it's arguable where it all lies. But it's not a coincidence that when men have dominated those two vocations, Mm -hmm. if you will, the way of success, the way of measuring success in both of those vocations is destruction and death.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And we are told in every workshop across this country, Mm -hmm. no conflict, no story.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And we are told to invent this linear plot, this goal, that through desire and problems that the writer must be God to Job. And through that, the character develops himself. And I, I always knew that, that can't possibly be the only way. I'm not saying it's wrong. Beautiful books are written mm-hmm. in that sense. The whole Western canon. I'm, I love the Greco-Roman tradition. It's, it's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yes.
2: But I think there are other ways mm-hmm. towards other means and other visions.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And one of the things that I knew I wanted to do was to write about American violence as a means towards American self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. But I did not want to repeat and enact American violence. I did not want to have a plot in which these characters were fed into the woodchipper of plot in order to serve an ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And I think what you learn is that when you refuse or surrender plot, you gain people. And it was important for me to look at these characters, perhaps one could argue that they are all protagonists. Mm-hmm. There is a narrator, but he does—he is not a central gaze. Everyone has their their own life on their own terms. And when they're not beholden to the assembly line of plot, you can see them with their own desires and complications. And it was not until I stumbled on a Japanese narrative structure mm-hmm. called Kishoku Tenketsu, mm-hmm of a a four part narrative structure that Mm -hmm. does not employ conflict as a way of telling a story. And if you are fans of Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: he employs those almost in every film. Kiki's Delivery Service, Totoro, who's a villain in Totoro? (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) Spirited away. And yet all of those stories are fraught with Mm -hmm. the human desires and fear and pain. And they operate through proximity. If you put uh-huh. people next to each other, and if you, ar- if you charge people and characters with a prehistory, with the context of the pressures of their social and political lives, naturally, tension builds. And we know that as people. All of us here are not here because we're orchestrated in a linear plot. Mm-hmm. We're here through proximity. And the meaning that we build here tonight is idiosyncratic to this moment. And as we leave this room and go to other rooms and have other proximity to other folks, we build that. And so I think plot, to me, happens more like chemistry. You have hydrogen, fine on its own, oxygen, fine on its own. You put them side by side, you have water, the essence of life. And, and I think. Being queer taught me t- to always look for another way. And often we think it's so hard to live the way we do. But it took me 30 years to realize everything I've, li- I've done as a queer person taught me how to write better. <laughs>
0: Um, I think that is a really beautiful lesson in life and writing. Um, because, yes, yeah, so often, sorry, you really made me cry. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's, it's true, in writing classes, we are taught that you have to earn the beauty. You know, that you have to go through the plot. You have to go through the, even if it's not some profound pain, you still, you have to go through the journey. You have to take the hero's journey in order to earn the beauty at the end. And I think that is, that is the thing that struck me immediately in this book, that you give us the beauty from the very beginning. And I think as, um, just as a writer reading that, I felt like, yeah, I want to do that, I want to, and I'm so happy to have that, and I want to be able to do that, and I want to talk to you about that, like, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that, but I'm also interested in talking to you about, just about beauty in general, and the desire for it. Yeah, There's maybe the first part first, and then we'll dig in. Yeah,
2: beauty, I think you learn I think you know. I would make a large generalization here. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll uh, be you know courageous and and yeah. say that if you live in this country long enough, you realize how necessary beauty is, and that a character arriving or even a reader arriving at a book doesn't need to understand where beauty lies in relation to that book if they live in this world. And this is informed, again, uh, mm. by Asian philosophy. In Buddhism, life is suffering. You know, When you have that ground, that's the ground zero. That's the common ground. And from there, you realize beauty is this necessary balm. And not only that, it's just something that you discover, but you have to make, right? If you, mm-hmm. if you don't make it, it might never come to you. And that agency was so precious to me as an artist. And and to write your book is to, to, in a way, to write your own treatise of beauty.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. A book, in this book particularly, there's 12 drafts in it. Ocean, as a person, only gets one draft at life. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Every moment I enter, I get one draft. But this book, I get 12. And this is the beauty of the book, is that it's our best self. It's twelve of me in a room figuring it out. And that's that's such a m- miracle that we as a species have that together. You pick up somebody's book and it's it's you know it's beautiful because it's their most well considered, their most dynamic, their most ambitious self. And I'm just happy to be able to do that.
1: Thanks. <laughs> Look it
0: Thank you for giving us the best of your 12 selves. Yeah. Um, so on a more shallow note, <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a point in this book where you talk about the desire to be beautiful and just physically beautiful. Do you remember, I mean, and I actually, I truly think that man or woman, young or old, we all have that desire, you know, in inside of us. And I think it took me a long time to realize that everybody felt that way. I think when I was young, I thought that boys didn't care how they looked at all, which is not true, <laughs> as we know. But um, I don't know, can you pinpoint kind of the beginning of when you first began to think about... And, and so I'm bringing this up because I think that is a really important kind of... Um, It's an important desire for Little Dog in this book, and it informs so much of what he does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. I I think the interesting thing about beauty is that it is only recognizable outside of itself. Yeah. You even need a mirror to know. Um, And what that means is that you depend, in a way, on how the world sees you. And for Little Dog growing up in Hartford, there were so few folks like him that looked like him. And I think also in the books, the media, the TV, the textbooks. You know, I remember being really excited looking ahead at my history textbook as an elementary school student and thinking, oh man, we're going to get to the Vietnam War. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to see myself. You know, you had this child childish but it's inter- terribly sad mm. to wait until tragedy yeah. to recognize yourself yeah. but even when we get there it's maybe two pages three pages right. you know. oh s- something bad happened over there, Nixon went like this <laughs> <laughs> and then the Gulf War happened right. and we were heroes again Right. it was very ambiguous it was very fast it was disorientating mm-hmm. Meanwhile, when we got to Washington, George Washington, it was a month. What he ate. (laughs) What kind of teeth he had.
0: The the uh, exact (laughs) shape of his dentures. Where he
2: lived. uh, Not how many slaves he owned, Mm -hmm. by the way. Uh, What kind of tree he chopped down. (laughs) And by the way, red flag, chopping down a fruit tree,
1: I know. <laughs> not a hero. <laughs> Why? <Yeah>. Why? <laughs> uh,
0: Destruction from the very first page. Yeah. It's, a cher- it's a cherry tree for Christ's <laughs> sakes. Um, yeah. But what ha- what you
2: realize is that um, education is mythology. Mm-hmm. Washington is a myth, and I think mm-hmm. the experience of a person of color in mm-hmm. growing up in America is one of supreme. Bone deep loneliness. And not just I'm alone, but I don't see me anywhere. Mm-hmm. And and so the seeking of beauty begins with the seeking of recognition of our humanity. So it's like ground zero. And I think that's why sometimes it's a lifelong endeavor and why it needs a collective. It rarely do we can do it alone. Um, and, and books was my way, you know. When I read Lee Young Lee's book *Rose*, mm-hmm. a beautiful Asian American poet, I only picked it up because his face was huge in the back of that book.
1: <laughs>
2: it was the entire back cover, and I just looked out. I flipped it up in the in the in the in the library shop. I saw this huge Asian American man, this beautiful, beautiful, handsome Asian American man. I was like, wow. My, it looked like the photos I see on my altar, you know, um, mm-hmm.
0: and, and I just thought, who are you, who is she, you know? Yeah. yeah. So how does it feel to look at this room today? It's been incredible,
2: it's overwhelming,
0: and, and I, can't, I, I can't actually
2: look at it too hard, I want to cry, so I've been, I've been just looking at shoes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We got some flip-flops <laughs> up in front. Stuff. got some nice sandals. I
2: can't <laughs> yeah. look at two. It's, it's been happening across the country, and I'm really grateful. Yeah. I look at the photos after. I can't yeah. do it now because I'll, I'll, I'll become a waterfall.
0: So you were um, on Seth Meyers a couple nights ago. was very exciting. And um, at the end of the interview, you... Um, Seth asked you if you wanted to um, say something to your mother, who does essentially does not speak English. Yeah. And, and you said something mm-hmm. to her, yeah. and it wasn't translated. Yes. And that was amazing. So amazing.
2: I thanked him so much in the back. Yeah. You know, and, and he was so aware. He mm-hmm. says, it's yours. It was incredible. You know, when's yeah. the last time? Someone like that, a white man, could just say, it's yours. I know. It was
0: really... (laughs) Sorry, guys. I said, yeah, it is. Yes, it is mine. Thank you. (laughs) And then I
2: took all the chocolate in the room.
0: (laughs) So It's it's mine, right? Yeah. (laughs) I also did Seth Meyers when my book came out, and... On our way there, my publicist was like, There's gonna be so many snacks in the green room, and you should take all of them. Yeah.
1: And I did. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> did. yeah.
0: yeah. And they're really good snacks. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you talk to us a little bit about the character of Trevor and kind of how that part of the story came about?
2: <laughs> Trevor is a white boy. Working class um, in the fe- in the tobacco fields of Connecticut, and, and these two literally bump into each other, and they have they figure out their desire. They enter they enter their desire, mm-hmm. and it was important for me to write whiteness in ways that whiteness never wrote of people of color, not as a way great. to say you know mm-hmm. oh. This is how it's really done. But I think mm-hmm. naturally, mm-hmm. we go back to W.E.B. Du Bois' double consciousness. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, uh,
2: mm-hmm. And if you live that way, mm-hmm. you, you consider the world more.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think often when whiteness writes of people of color, it's very conspicuous. Right? The black woman went into the room. The Chinese woman on the bench. right. But if it's a white person, it's just Phil. Right, mm-hmm. or it's just a man right? so, yeah. so whiteness is taken out right. and it's very subtle, it's very unconscious mm-hmm. but it's a huge power dynamic because it assumes that whiteness is a given mm-hmm. that it is, the white reader is a given that it's a norm mm-hmm. that it, it's, it's so uh, ubiquitous that it does not need to be mentioned I think what happens though is that when you don't consider whiteness as a construct, you write with only one ear to the world mm-hmm. and one ear underwater. And it's an incredible un- disservice to your own writing. And I'm a writing teacher. I have white students. I mm-hmm. tell them this. You know, mm-hmm. I said, you have to, if the work of the writer is to interrogate the world thoroughly, to charge it with your investigative eye and to wrench meaning and seek out discoveries within those spaces. And if you don't see whiteness as an actual construct, you 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 lose half of your world. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're writing with only one eye open mm-hmm. and you can't do that. You owe it to yourself as a writer to refuse that blindness mm-hmm. of your ancestors. And I knew that the the inquiry that I had, for char- Trevor's character was, what was what would happen, if a, a white boy started to struggle out of whiteness as it's informed by hegemonic masculinity? Yeah. Could he survive? What is the cost of somebody waking up into their desire mm-hmm. and out of? Their oppressive milieu. Can they make it? That was the inquiry, and in order to do that, I had to look at him closely. And when you look at anybody closely, they start to fall out of their stereotypes. Mm-hmm. He's not a redneck. He's not a some hillbilly. He's somebody that loves sunflowers. He 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 has a soft spot, you know, for for things that bloom, and there's absolute tenderness. So tenderness for him becomes a breach. And he betrays his elders and his people by enacting tenderness. And, and it's an incredibly fraught moment. And I think for me, it's, can they live it? Can they outlive that, that breach? And I think often we think of, again, refugees, immigrants, as powerless, having nothing but the shirt on their back. That's, that's the, the narrative. But in this book, we realize that Little Dog is actually much more comfortable with his queerness mm-hmm. because he is raised by women from a tradition where queerness was celebrated as clairvoyance, as power, mm-hmm. as sorcery. And yes. the way he negotiated his queerness was actually a gift. Yes. He, he, he actually knew more about his body than Trevor did. And Trevor was locked in this cage of whiteness. Often we think whiteness is all about privilege, which it is, but that privilege is also a straitjacket under the certain circumstances. And my question is, can Trevor outlive that? What would happen? What would, what kind of price would a boy have to pay if he tried to break those chains towards more of himself?
0: We won't tell you what happens, but (laughs) it's, yeah, that really was, um, I just found that relationship so engrossing, and um, I know it it really makes me happy to hear you say that, that as a writing teacher, you are teaching your white students to that whiteness is something that is that can be examined, that is worth examining, that should be examined. Because I really, you know, I've often wondered, like, where is that novel that is actually not going to, like, just happen to be about white people, but that's mm-hmm. actually going to examine this place in America at this moment? And um, I, I do think that it takes kind of hearing someone who... Um, who just out of necessity is always, you know, has had to examine their identity. Right. You know, it can take someone like you saying that in order to kind of motivate the right that right. examination.
2: And it's important mm-hmm. for everyone, yeah, to take that to do on, it. including mm-hmm. white writers, mm-hmm. um, because what I'm saying is not new. Toni Morrison said this in right. *Playing in the Dark*. Yeah. You know, every generation there's somebody saying it. But, but it's think, still not being done. Yes, I yeah. think the biggest fear, the biggest danger, is that mm-hmm. death is the ultimate etch a sketch. <sighs> that every generation has to start over. Mm-hmm. Unlike the iPhone, where if you if you, if Steve Jobs moves on, which he ha- which he has, he leaves a blueprint. Every iPhone is a clear blueprint. So the next one is an exact, guaranteed. You know progress,
0: mm-hmm. upgrade, mm-hmm.
2: it's there, it's fixed. But human beings and human knowledge is not like that. As soon as we die, the next, the, 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 the child born today, yesterday, has to start over. They have to do all of this work, this work of reckoning with history, understanding, they do it over, every person is an etch sketch which is why it's so important to really reckon it together and not let up the slack. We owe it to each other. We owe it to the art.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I know we want to open it up to questions from the audience. I just want to ask you one last question about a line from one of your poems that I love so much. I, I actually, I think before I ever read anything by you, anything else by you, I some, someone had just quoted this line, and I wrote it down in a notebook. Um, and then I've seen it come up a lot recently, but um, there's a poem in which you have a line that is, loneliness is still time spent with the world. And it's, I just think it's so moving and beautiful, and I don't know, I, I think I want to know how much you think about loneliness. I'm not sure what I want to know, but I think I just want you to talk about that line, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: that line particularly is this. I think the power of language. Language made that line possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, without language, I wouldn't be able to think that way. And what that what that line does is it, it, it 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 turns the microscope into a large overhead view of the world. Within a single sentence, we go from a narrow space into a wide panoramic shot. And that, in the, at the end, we're all on this little planet. And it could ha- the magic of that, it happens within a few words, mm-hmm. right? And we go from one place to another. And I think that line is, is me being hopeful. And, and I think when we write anything, we write a novel,
0: mm-hmm.
2: we're writing a future ghost. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Often we think a ghost is what remains after the body dies. But when we write a book, we're writing the ghost that hopefully might be fleshed. We're writing a futurity. And again, we write towards hope. Mm -hmm. I think all innovation happens out of hope. And I think I was was most hopeful in that line, that loneliness at the end of the day is still uh, an existential inquiry Mm -hmm. with people. Together on this one little planet. That
0: was beautiful. We write towards hope. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Great. Ocean. And uh, yeah. Thank you. Okay. There's no microphone, but uh, just please shout out your question. Please remember to make it a question and not a statement. I'll leave it up to you. Okay. Can pick them. And here.
2: Hi Ocean. Hi. My name is Alan from
0: Kinetic Division. Oh hi. Hi. I'm forty eight year
1: old. Um and I've always been moved so much by your work and thought of asking this question. You know, speaking of loneliness, I feel like I've always been searching and trying to there's such a scarcity and intimacy and deeper connections and longing for that. And I wondered if you ever struggled with that and if it's influenced your work of course, I'm sure. And how you navigate through
2: that. Yeah, yeah, no. the the question is is the struggle of intimacy and and loneliness um Yeah, inform my work. Um I think the, the 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 simple answer is yes because everything informs my work. Um and I think particularly with queerness in this book sex and desire are often seen as plot points for the architecture of a novel. Um, you know, great novels, Pride and Prejudice. It's all about getting people, possess, possessing people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and there's whole plots around acquiring bodies. And what I wanted in this book was to see desire as inexhaustible. That as desire propels these bodies forward, they actually don't possess any more than they already began, which is what we know. What That's what it is. Um, you know, whether you you're just discovering your sexuality or you're 50 or 60 you still want and love the same you still want all of it you still want it it's a human thing and the same thing happens with desire desire to live even, you know, why animals factor in so much of this book you you see an ant you slap the table and it runs even an ant wants to live wants to survive, you know so I think it's just always an obsession of mine is what kind of force happens out of desire? And for, as a queer person, I've always felt that desire to me was like a hurricane in a mason jar. It's just this thing that we, we can really tell anybody. And I wanted this book to or- orchestrate desire as weather, as a texture, as a climate, to to put that mason jar open and release that into the world between these characters. Yes? I'll be brief, I'll be brief. (laughs)
1: Um, I'll
2: be brief, um, because I said a lot, and and there's more to say, but if there's one like Nugget, I think I would say, scare yourself, but don't be scared of yourself.
0: masculinity
1: being perpetuated, especially through the language of destruction uh, and death. And I'm just wondering sort of how you see sort of your responsibility as a, as a writer and how uh, is sort of
0: it addressing a lot of that and how that possibly, that there might be some kind of, uh, I don't know the language to use, but some kind of remedy being provided through language right. and through writing.
2: Right. Um, do you want to repeat that question for
0: folks? Sure. Um, on Seth Meyers, you talked about toxic masculinity, and he's wondering how, what the responsibility or the solution could be in writing. Yeah, yeah. Just a brief version. <laughs> Sorry. We, how writing can help address that issue? Particularly around among men
2: and boys in this country, but really everyone now. Uh, we use the lexicon of death as a way to to celebrate each other. You're killing it, you're making a killing. Smash them, knock them dead. You went in there guns blazing. I banged her, I owned her, I owned that workshop. I effed her brains out. And what happens, and I don't think it's an accident, it's not a coincidence that this country celebrates each other that way. That the only way we see worth is through what we have decimated. Even on the innocuous mode of of hyperbole and metaphor. And I think what happens to the psyche when 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 the only way we see value is through destruction. And I think as a writer, I'm always obsessed with language. But I also think it's really not even the, the realm. It's not only in the realm of the writer. It's in the realm of every single person. When we're taught language, we're taught standardized English in this country. And what happens is that we see it as this fixed monolithic thing that we have to acquire, learn the rules in order to live successful professional lives. Right? And that's true. But what happens is that we forget that language is malleable. If it's not malleable, you and I will be speaking in Chaucerian Middle English, yeah. huh. the original written English. Yeah. So it changes. It's incredibly uh, uh, fluctuated. And in fact, the answer to, the, to your question would be, you know, often we say, the future is in your hands, But I think more accurately, the future is in your mouth. You change it right now. You decide, as soon as you open your mouth, you decide how you talk and therefore how you think and then therefore how you see the world around you. You don't have to be a writer to do it. You just have to be a user of language and you have to look at language and see it as this palpable thing. Language is to us what water is to fish. We're always moving through it and you have the power and it's happening anyway right, it's happening anyway. That's giving me life. I'm living for it. We're already changing it. And often it's out of these marginalized, queer, particularly black communities, that's changing the language. I'm throwing shade, Netflix and chill. (laughs) It's an incredible mode where we start to push the limits and create what's needed for us to realize a better world and so if we want to live in that world over there in the future we have to start speaking that world into existence yes
0: there's someone back there who wants to ask a question yes thank you for sharing your
2: story it is uh, the question is: Is it? Is there movie rights?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I can't say. Ooh, <laughs> that means yes. <laughs> Anyone else? Questions? Yes, sir.
2: Um, Every draft I read aloud, so by the time I narrated it, it was already familiar on my tongue. And again, this is informed by the oral tradition that I was brought up on. And I would argue that before I ever stepped foot in a workshop or any writing group, I was already given master classes by the women in my family. Because you realize when they tell these stories, it's boiled down from centuries It's these stories are the, the Wikipedia of stories they were all edited towards the most succinct impactful moments everybody had their hand in creating the tension, the details and it's countless drafts so what I really had was a master class of storytelling and that happens through feeling it in the mouth on the tongue and so reading the book was just the next step in what I was already always doing and a praxis that was literally handed to me by the Vietnamese women who raised me. Yeah. Yep. Maybe Anyone two else? more questions, two more questions.
0: Okay. Two more questions. Yeah.
2: I think Buddhism informs everything that I do, Um, and one of the things it teaches is that nothing, non-dualism, which happens to be a very queer theory, that no binary is a fixed one and is even solid. So what that creates is ultimate interrogation where doubt is not a wall, but a method of thinking. And whether you're a writer or not, um, that's only better things can come out of that confrontation, of that embracing doubt as a source of energy and not as a site of failure.
0: All right, who is the very best last question? (laughs) Oh, right here. Hi.
2: the The question is at what point does one honor the people one writes about, particularly in relation to uh, these women out of the diaspora? I don't know. I don't know if, uh, is there a point where I can honor them. I don't know if coming to those terms is even possible because the, the, the question underneath that is at what point is this writing life enough for them, through them, et cetera. And I don't know if it's possible. And I think it's okay to reckon with the impossibility often a question i i get is well how do you come to terms with being who you are how do you come to terms with american history how do you come to terms with being queer and yellow how do you come to terms and i and i think that question is often asked of folks out of rupture but it's rarely asked of those who wield the weapons and i think it might possibly be impossible to come to terms. And that's probably one of the most powerful things that I discovered along the way was like, wait a minute. I don't know if I'm supposed to. Mm -hmm. One body Mm -hmm. in this lifetime, in, in in a history that has been going on for thousands of years. I don't know if I can or I should and you should relieve yourself the burden of coming to terms. Don't try to come to terms. Come to understanding on your own terms. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.